Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Well, I, I don't know about you, I read the news in some different ways, don't watch the news very much, but uh, read the news in, in a few different ways, and, and a couple things struck me uh, in one of my news sources this week, some different articles, and it led me down a bit of a rabbit hole, but um, just this week, there was, was these two headlines, three Massachusetts cities now officially recognize domestic partnerships among three or more people. Another headline, Caitlyn Jenner, the 1976 Olympic decathlon gold medalist, formerly known as Bruce, declared, I've never claimed to be a biological woman. That would be factually incorrect. I am trans and biologically male. Those headlines, along with, in the last few weeks, there was a notable podcast that was released called The Witchcraft Trials of J.K. Rowling, detailing the canceling that the popular Harry Potter author has received as a result of her insistence that biological sex is unchangeable. Now, also in the last few weeks, multiple states have debated legislation regarding the minimum age to allow people to get married. There's lots of more headlines like this, right? I could be doing this for a long time. We can't avoid issues related to men and women and marriage and what do those things all mean, okay? You just can't avoid it. And so we're not going to avoid it. Our goal as Christ followers should never be to, at the same time, never be to chase the winds of culture, okay? If you've been around at all, you know we're not here every week kind of just me reading the news going, well, I guess we'll talk about this because it's in the news. We don't do that. We don't make a habit of that. Because our goal, again, is not to chase the winds of culture so that they'll kind of fill our sails with significance, make us feel like, oh, we're in the, the cutting edge of all the things that are happening, and, and, and sort of help us make our way around the chaotic seas. That's, that's not our goal. But what we do want to do, as we've just sung about and just saw the, the roll in, we want to build our lives on the rock that is Jesus. And that means building our lives on his will and his ways so that no matter what the seas do and no matter the storms of our time, we can stand firm. Okay? That, that's the, the goal of this series. We're just spending about four weeks talking about these, these topics. And these first two weeks are uh, perspective shaping. And the next two weeks will be a little bit more practical in terms of, well, then what do we do in, in our relationships? But I just want to review that, again, the, the point of this series is to build your house according to God's design, okay? That's what we looked at last week. Ultimately, what we're, we're saying is we want to build our house, uh, our families, according to God's design. And this is what Jesus says about all of life. Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, right? Not just hears those words and says, well, those are nice words. Those sound really great. Sure, I'll adopt those words as my words. But instead, also acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, okay? So that's our goal. That's what we're setting out to do. But once again, I want to ask this question. Why do we care so much about this? Because I do recognize that, that you may be here and you may say, hey, <laughs> one, maybe you didn't know what we were going to talk about this morning, and so you're like, oh, great. 
Uh, you know, I should have planned this better. Um, but maybe, uh, again, the, the thought that I think often pops up is, you know, again, those Christians, why are they so hung up on these things? And why is this such a big deal to them? And so today what I want to ask more specifically is, why do the materials matter? Okay? Well, if we're building our families, why do the materials matter, right? You could say, well, you know, as long as, when you think about house, just building a house, as long as something bears resemblance to a house, you know, kind of looks like a house, and, and as long as that thing seems to provide adequate shelter, then why should we care what it's made up of? I think there's a, there's a house down in Houston. I should have pulled the picture, but there's a house down in Houston because there's no zoning laws in Houston, despite it being like the fourth largest city in the United States. There's no zoning laws. And so like right in the middle of, of a whole bunch of other uh, businesses and different things, there's a house that's made out of uh, recycled bottles, right? Like concrete and recycled bottles, right? Just, I mean, just this wacky house that's just been growing and growing over the years. And so you could ask, well, you know what? Yeah, it's a wacky material for building, but if it provides shelter, it looks like a house, why would we quibble over this? Why is this such a big deal? Plus, okay, as some critics often point to, once again, the scriptures seem to maybe allude to the fact that we're a little hung up on the wrong thing. Galatians 3.28, often quoted in these kinds of matters, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, now, a couple points on this. One, as this whole series is, in this case, uh, what we're talking about is a metaphor, okay? Houses are different than a flesh, flesh and blood family, okay? Can we just understand that? Like, we're talking metaphorically, that usually helps engage more than just our, our, our intellect. It helps engage our imagination. And so the scriptures use metaphor. We use metaphors in our own stuff. This is a metaphor, okay? So these are different. We're not talking about exactly the same thing, but we're comparing them to help engage our, our brains a little differently. And the second thing is that Galatians 3.28 refers to being in Christ. And so the assumption when you start to talk about this is you're talking about people who have believing loyalty to Christ. And so then it's speaking of the breaking down of arbitrary man-made barriers that prevented access to God's forever kingdom family. Okay? That's what's being referenced here in Galatians 3. It's, it's not just a, an overarching thing saying, well, you know what, if it just for everybody, because Jesus came one time 2,000 years ago, now this whole thing about male and female or, or anything else, these things don't matter. That's not the issue. That's not what's being talked about. What's being addressed here is that if there was any barrier that was going to be made by culture that would keep people from the grace and goodness of God, that is done away by Jesus. Okay, So that's what's going on there. But there's even more that we need to understand to know, okay, why are we talking about the materials? Okay, so a couple things. When it comes to these issues, we need to understand. We're going to look, again, we're going to travel a lot today. Okay, so I forgot to mention it earlier. If you want, you can pull out your Bibles. We're going to go in a lot of spots, but we're going to land in Ephesians 5. 
Okay, And so if you guys pull it back up, Ephesians 5, page 1055 in that Bible in front of you, you can go ahead and be there. We're going to be in Genesis as well, which is easy to find. It's page 1. Okay, um, And so, but, but we'll get there. But before that, a, a couple things, some groundwork for us to understand these things. When it comes to these issues, first thing, need to know that Jesus both raised the requirements and extended mercy. Okay? When it comes to these issues, Jesus raised the requirements and extended mercy. We tend to think, oh, Old Testament, the law, there's all these requirements, there's all these you know, boundaries and these different things. That, but, but then Jesus came and everything got better. It, it, got, it got so much easier because Jesus, he was just all loving and you know, he, he didn't really care too much. We, Jesus doesn't care about all these things that we talk about here. If, if Christians would just be more like Jesus, then we would stop talking about anything like this. Okay? That, that's often the narrative. But understand, Jesus raised the requirements and extended mercy. He, he raised the requirements. Matthew 5, okay, we said that, that Matthew 7 that we looked at, build your house on the rock. And, and build it on my words, he's referring especially to the Sermon on the Mount that he's just preached. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses issues related to men and women and marriage and sexuality, all these things. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you're the, the men listening to this, you're like, oh, Oh, okay, well, that's different. This, he didn't make things easier. He raised the requirement because he's about something else. He's, he's seeking something far more important, okay? He goes on. He, he goes on in that same, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, to talk about marriage specifically and the topic of divorce. And we're not going to get into all of that today or, or really even touch on it a whole lot, but I want to flip forward to Matthew 19 where he says very much the same thing but expands on it a bit. Okay, so Matthew 19.3, we're told that some Pharisees approached him to test him, some religious leaders, and they're coming trying to, to trap him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? What they're trying to do is put him in conflict with Moses. And so everybody will go, oh, look, we thought this guy was a real deal, but now he's speaking poorly of Moses, and so now we got him. That's their, that's their game. Jesus begins to answer. We'll look at more of his answer a little later. But, but ultimately what he says is what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? And here's what Jesus says. One, you got it wrong. He didn't command anything. He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He raises the requirement here. Okay? And his disciples, listen to their response. His disciples, not the Pharisees, his disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. They don't just hear this and go, well, of course, that's, yeah, okay, because we're good, you know, religious folks. They're blown away by this. And they're beginning to question their own commitments because they realize, wait, Jesus just said there's something like he, he's raising the temperature here. He's raising the requirement here. So he did that. He raises the requirements. He does it again and again and again. But also he extended mercy. 
John 8, we're told of an occasion when the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and it made her, making her stand in the center. Okay, so they, they formed this, this tribunal, bring this woman, they've caught her in adultery, how they caught her, we don't know. But she's been brought now to, to have to be thrust into this circle and put on trial. And they make Jesus the judge. Again, trying to catch him. So teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he was writing, but when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left. Tribunal disperses. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Now listen to this. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Now Jesus raised the requirements. He doesn't get skimpy on what, what is God's intent, what is God's law, what, is God, what, what are the boundaries that God has created for our human interactions and relationships. He raises requirements, but he also extends mercy. Notice, Jesus doesn't excuse her sin, but he has the power to forgive her and call her to a brand new life. And that's just what he does. I, I love this statement. It's been immensely helpful for me over the years. Henry Cloud says this in his great book, Integrity. He says, grace is not removing the standard. The requirement stays. And the person of grace does what is possible to be for the other person's meeting it. Okay, you catch that very often. We, we, something goes wrong, we do something, and, and somebody says, and that person says, well, just, why can't you just show me grace? And what they mean is, why can't you just do away with the standard? Why can't you just pretend like the standard doesn't need to be there? But that's not what grace is. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just, just obliterate the standard. He doesn't say the standard was, was wrong, it didn't matter. He actually raises the standard, but then what does he do? He, he, he then helps us meet it. Right? He, he raised the expected standards. Why did he do that? He did it to show how much humanity has failed in its duty. And he, he, all throughout his ministries, he's going, look, you guys have no clue just how lost you are. But he's doing that to then point to the fact that he was going to become sin for us so that we could meet God's perfect standard. Jesus is a life of grace. He shows mercy in this situation, but mercy doesn't mean that we throw the standard out. He calls that woman to go and sin no more. And, and you can imagine, she's just had, I mean, 
We, we don't even understand the, the gravity of what would have gone on in that situation, but you can imagine the humiliation of that woman. And now what Jesus has just done is transformative. It's redemptive. It's pointing to what Jesus is going to do on the cross for anyone who will receive this new life. This is the good news. We all fall short of God's standards. Requirements are far higher than we think they are. And yet Jesus has come to offer forgiveness and not just offer it, but to secure it. So you got to understand boundaries are created by God for our good. And this shows up again and again and again. We'll, We'll see it more here in a minute. But that leads us to the second thing to consider. Okay, I want to look at three passages of varying difficulty for us to understand, okay? These are some of the probably hardest passages to understand and the ones that will prick us in our modern culture as much as anything. And I'm not going to answer all the questions raised by the passages. If you flip there later, go read those in more depth, you're going to go, oh, wow, there's a lot going on there. I'm not getting into all that, okay? It's just not time to do that. I'm happy to answer questions, but not doing that today. But what I want you to see is that as issues are addressed, okay, As these issues are addressed, the common approach by the biblical writers, by Jesus, by Paul, the common approach is to refer back to what God did when he created humans as the template for relationships going forward, okay? That's the way this all works, okay? So our understanding, the second thing here is that our understanding of these issues is rooted in creation. Our understanding is rooted in creation, We're not arbitrarily going back there and trying to go, well, we found something that seems to support us. No, this is what happens again and again and again in in talking about these issues as we go back to the beginning. Okay, so Matthew 19, we'd already looked at part of it, four through five. What does Jesus say? He's giving his answer about marriage and divorce. He says, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. 1 Corinthians 11, 12. Paul's talking about how men and women are to relate to one another in this specific situation in the church. And he says, for just as woman came from man, that's what Genesis 1 explains to us, or Genesis 2 explains, sorry, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. So he's referring back to the order of creation. Man is created outside the garden. He's brought to the garden. Woman is then created inside the garden from the man. But, Paul says, men are created from the woman because she's the one who gives birth. And that's the way God intended it. Okay? But all things come from God who has set this whole thing up. So it's a reference back to creation. And then 1 Timothy 2.13, in a discussion about how men and women are to interact in the church. Paul says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, again, I'm not getting into all the things that are being discussed there, but I just want you to see that this is the approach. They're looking back and going, what God did back there is meant to be a template. It's meant to help us understand how we're to think about these things. So Adam is formed first, then Eve, and that has significance as we think about some different things. Okay, so with that in mind, big picture, humans are created. And we're created to extend God's original work of forming and filling. Okay, 
You say, well, why do the materials matter? Well, here's why. We are created to extend God's original work of forming and filling. I want you to see, I'm just going to, I found that this is one way of understanding just what God does in creation. But we see it again and again and again that, that these two ideas, forming and filling, shape what God has done in creation and continues to do uh, in the lives of his people. So look at this chart. Okay? This explains the days of creation. Okay, So day one through three on one side, day four through six on the other side. Day one, forming and filling, day, night. Day and night are formed. Day four, day and night having been formed, now we fill it with sun, moon, and stars. Day two, waters and expanse are created. They're formed. Day five, they're filled with sea creatures and birds. Day day three, dry land separated from the waters. There's dry land created. And on day six, the filling is livestock, beasts, humans. There's, There's a poetry to what gets created here, but this is the explanation of what God has done as he created things. This is how he did it. And there's these twin ideas of forming and filling with humans as the pinnacle of God's creation. And so now I want to zoom in just as scriptures do, just as Genesis does. Genesis 2, 18, okay? There's this original thing that God's done. He's forming and filling. In Genesis 2.18, we're told, right there at the beginning, again, we'll, we'll look at some other parts to this, but Genesis 2, the Lord God said, this is after the man's been created, he's been brought to the garden, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, there's a problem here. Notice that, right? God says, I've created, I've created a man, but something is not good. Everything had been good, and the creation of humanity ultimately will be very good, but there's something not good here. A solitary human, furthermore, a solitary male human, is not good. And why is that? You say, oh, because relationships matter. We, we really need each other. Yeah, relationships are important, but I want you to hold that thought. The bigger issue here is duty. There's a bigger issue. That, that's duty. That, that mankind is given a mandate. Genesis 1, 26-28. We're told why God created man. God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, which we get to the the specifics here in a second. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Again, there's these ideas of forming and filling. What's the duty, right? It's be fruitful and multiply. Reproduce. And not just once, but again and again and again. That's the be fruitful and multiply. Continue to be fruitful. And the other part of the duty is fill the earth. Literally, the idea is satisfy it. The earth is awaiting filling. It's been made for cultivating. So satisfy the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
The idea here is ruling. It's, it's cultivation and enjoyment of this earth that's been given to mankind to care for and to enjoy. Okay. Now, zoom in more closely. I want you to hear, again, what led to this and then where God goes with that. Okay, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Okay, so he's given these instructions Work this place, watch over it, literally keep it, protect it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. He gives them boundaries. And that law is given to the man directly. And then the Lord God, having given these responsibilities and given these boundaries, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So, what do we take away? Here's the thing. Men are not the end-all, be-all. Men were insufficient. Males were insufficient on their own for the duty of mankind. Okay? They weren't enough. One author said, the man could tend and enlarge the structure area of the garden but he could not fill it by himself. This is why if we say, look, this is just about relationship. God, we just needed somebody else to relate to. He could have created more males. He didn't do that. Because there was a duty, there was a larger thing in, in play here. And God says, okay, so the answer, it's not another just like him, but one who is corresponding to him. And here we get to the beauty of contrast. The beauty of complementarity. Okay, I want you to see a picture. Ansel Adams, known for, for black and white photos, but also capturing the contrast of landscape. Where the, where the rocks meet the sea. The land, the shore meets the, the water. There's something beautiful in contrast. It, these, these things that, are, that have similarities but are different, they complement each other. And there's a beauty to that. And so it is when God creates both male and female. See, it takes men and women to image the maker. One would not suffice. And furthermore, the one who has made a helper corresponding to him, sometimes you go, oh, it's the help. Right? We, you, yeah, created the, the woman to be the help. Understand, the helper, ezer, is a term that is overwhelmingly applied to God himself. He is our help. So this is a noble, noble spot, role, a, a person who's been created for the carrying out of what God has in mind. And so you have this male and you have this female and they are joined in a commitment that, untarnished by sin, because now sin enters the world here in a little bit, and, and that makes this more complicated, but, but untarnished by sin, given the duties of mankind, the male and the female, the man and the woman, become a husband and wife, and that commitment is necessarily sexual. Okay? Rebecca McLaughlin 
Fantastic book. I've mentioned it before, Confronting Christianity. I'm going to commend it to you again. If I say some things, you're like, oh, I don't know about this. I have questions. Okay, I'm glad to answer your questions. But, but her book, it's out there. You can go look at it. It's fantastic. She does a fantastic job with this. But she says this, sex joins man and woman in intimate relationship as they become fruitful and multiply. And furthermore, this is pointing to something else. The God who exists in utter intimacy with love across difference at the core of his being creates image bearers who are of the same essence but different and calls them into one flesh unity. Again, there's a duty for mankind and that involves being fruitful and multiplying and it also involves enjoying the things of this world that God has created for enjoyment. And so marital union is intended to reflect that. But those are the boundaries that God has created. There's a certain exclusivity that is intended for enjoyment and intended for the carrying out of those duties. But that's not the only relationship that then can exist. So then there is an inclusivity that can exist in friendship outside of the marriage bound. Okay? Then we come up to the problem. And all of this goes haywire through our rebellion. So you go to Genesis 3. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But, but Genesis 3, what we know as the fall, and all of this goes haywire through our rebellion. And specifically, ruling is made hard by the curse on the man. Okay, the result of this is now ruling is hard. And multiplying is made hard by the curse on the woman. The duties of mankind will now be frustrated because we've brought sin into the world through our rebellion. And now, not just in those duties, but now there's this relational conflict, right? Between them is conflicting desires and a power struggle. And so what we tend to do is just look at the the result and then try to build back and understand, well, this must mean all these other things. And think we understand the beginning because we see the result. Well, God says, no, no, no. I want you to understand what happened in the beginning so you then can frame this problem rightly and understand where did we start? Where should we be? Okay? And, and, and here's the other thing I'll say about this really quickly. When we get into thinking about these issues, our assumption, and especially because we're about to look at Ephesians 5, our assumption tends to be that the most competent person will always be in the most high-profile position. Okay? See, very often when we get twisted up or, or, or torqued on this, these ideas, it's because we're actually adopting a, an ungodly view of power. And we think that if you're the person that has the profile, the high-profile that's in the spotlight, or that's been given a certain higher profile responsibility, that that means you're necessarily the most competent. And some of you probably are chuckling because you know in your very own experience that is not always the case. And so I just ask you to to begin to think about what is my scorecard for significance? Am I getting it from the Bible or am I getting it just from what everybody else thinks? So with that in mind, let's look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start a little farther back than what you have there. Pick that up. 
Start back in verse 15. Okay, this is just where part of this argument picks up. Book written to help Ephesian church understand who they are in Christ and then what that means in their, their living with one another as a church. And so Ephesians 5, 15, Paul says, pay careful attention then to how you live. And he goes on, he says uh, in verse 18, be filled by the Spirit. Okay, so if we're going to pay attention to how we live, we need to be filled by the Spirit. We're doing this in the power that God supplies. And then he concludes that part saying, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So, pay attention to how you live. It matters. Lean on the Lord himself and understand that relationally this is going to involve some giving. We're all going to give. There's all going to, everybody's going to involve, is going to be required to, to give of themselves to make this thing as it's supposed to be. And then he gets into some specifics, and this is where things get fun. Okay? Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Now, just a couple things, and we're not going to Spend a ton of time here. I'm going to try to bring this all together. But I want you to know this was not expected by those who heard it. This is not the Apostle Paul just kind of parroting the common ideas of the day and, and, and putting a little bit of a Christian sheen on them and going, you know, this is how we all do things, but, but now we'll make it a metaphor. It, this sounds good. We'll, we'll make this something that talks about Jesus, make it more religious. That'll be great. What he talks about here is completely countercultural for his day. Where women were treated as property and men could pretty much do what they wanted. And Jesus comes on the scene and he completely flips that and, and this is just more of that happening. Okay. And so it's easy to get hung up on the word submit, right? That's the one we start, we start reading 22. Oh, we're two words in. Okay, now I'm upset, right? That, that's, that's the way this tends to go. But this is the design of God within marriage, okay? Really important here. Notice this does not say, women, submit to men. Wives, submit to your husbands, okay? And notice the picture that's painted. It's of a man, a, a husband, loving to the uttermost. You say, how far? Well, Jesus is the exemplar. How far did he go? That's what's laid on the man's shoulders. And the woman respectfully helping, like God helps, in response 
to his sacrifice. There's a dance created here where together they are carrying out the duty of mankind. Loving and respecting. Has this been horrifically twisted? Absolutely. But this is the design of God. If you're embarrassed by what God has said here, then it'll be pretty easy to be embarrassed in all kinds of places. So some conclusions from all we've looked at. Again, we're going to look more practically next week, but, but here's some conclusions. Men and women are equal, but not interchangeable. Okay? If that was the case, there's no reason for the creation of females. All the way back in Genesis. But any idea that one is more important than the other is unbiblical. We are equal before the Lord, but we are not interchangeable. Secondly, Men and women are distinctly designed to complement each other. Again, the differences are not arbitrary. And they're also not just whatever culture makes of them, okay? My wife is a better leader than I am, just naturally. Those of you who know and interact with her, you know that. There are certain things that, that she enjoys that are... I mean, she's, a, she's more of a thinker. I feel things deeply. The stereotype would be, well, you know, the man's the one that's just stoic and you know, doesn't feel anything. And, and the women are, oh, they just wear their emotions on their sleeve. It's just a stereotype. And sometimes those stereotypes can be helpful, but they're not, a, a, you know, they're not the end all. So letting culture determine what is male and female isn't what we're talking about here. At the same time, we have to understand we are designed and we are different, and our, our differences are meant to be a complement to one another. And then finally, we are given in marriage as a primary, though imperfect, corporation. Okay, I'll come back to that. Corporation for carrying out God's purposes. Okay, you say corporation, Christian, what are you talking about? Like, why should marriage be thought of as corporate? Sounds so cold and, you know, like Enron-y, right? I, I don't want to, don't... <laughs> I don't want that. But I want, you to, I want you to hear the definition of a corporation. Okay? Here's the definition. I don't have the de- Here, yeah, there we go. A body formed and authorized by law to act as a single person, although constituted by one or more persons and legally endowed with various rights and duties, including the capacity of succession. Now, is Christian marriage, I mean, is marriage, as God's lined this out, Slightly different, yes. But I want you to to hone in on this idea of a body formed out of not just one, but two persons. So this is a type of corporation. And and it's it's brought together to be one. And and that word corp, notice, right, what do we call a dead person? A corpse, because it's a body. There's this corporeal, right? It's bodily And that's what we are in in marriage. God brings together and creates one, two, from two, one. Now, the two don't disappear, but they are united. And so they're a corporation for carrying out God's purposes. 
But they're also, and then another thing here is that it is primary. Now, the facts are the vast majority of people will get married. That doesn't mean if you're not married, you're second class at all. But if for us to act like marriage isn't important, again, is also counter to what the scriptures say. The vast majority of people will get married. And furthermore, societies where, where marriage is made difficult, for example, in situations like China where their one-child policy is now wreaking havoc because there's not enough women to go around for all the men, in those societies, things are, are bad. They're worse off. So God has created marriage, again, as a primary means of seeing his, of his, his plan carried out in the world. Be fruitful and multiply, and, and this is a part of that. But it's not perfect. And, and not just because, not, because no marriage is perfect, but it's also not perfect because we need more than just the family. We need the church, which is the family of families. And it's a spot that allows for you to be a vitally important part, right? a part of a body with many parts where we can all collectively complement one another and carry out God's purposes. See, forming and filling goes on in the church. Christ is building his church, he says. And we're told that the Spirit is filling the church, giving us new life and nurturing our growth into maturity. And so as the people of God, it is our great privilege to co-labor with him for these purposes. Guys, the material of our families and of God's family is not arbitrary. Men and women have been created in the image of God to represent him and to continue his good work in this world for the life of the world. So I've tried to show you where, the, where biblically faithful Christian ideas on these matters come from. And my hope is you would see they're not just true, but beautiful. And so if you disagree, I want to just encourage you to consider, where do your ideas come from? Okay, that's not snarky. That's just me saying, where do your ideas come from? Have you thought through that? And if you have questions, please ask. Again, you've got those cards. Ask anything. Some of you submitted questions last week. I'm going to get to them this week, okay? Promise. Submit your questions. And if you agree, right? If you, you hear this and it's resonating, you go, yep, that's, that's what I believe. Great. But then let's do all we can with the power that God supplies to live out these truths, to, to build something in our families and as a church that is beautiful and beneficial. Okay? Again, we're going to look at how to do that more in depth the next two weeks, but let's pray together. Father, most high God, you are all-wise, all-powerful. You are nothing but good. And yet we live in a world that you know all too well is stained by our own rebellion and makes what seem to be fundamental, easy questions and answers so complex and hard to navigate. But Father, you've sent your son Jesus so that we can 
be rescued, set on the rock where we can build in the power that you supply. And so I pray that that would be the story of every person here where we aren't or that isn't our story, Lord. I pray that you would grant understanding leading to belief and repentance and new life. And for those where we, we have begun to build on the rock, Lord, help us. Help us to continue to learn and grow and be faithful to honor you. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day. Thank you.